this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i am zubeda hamid your host for today on october 31st this year the supreme court declared that the two finger test a test used on survivors of rape or sexual assault was not only regressive and unscientific but also re-victimized and re-traumatized women. In a first, the court also said that any person who conducts this test in sexual assault cases shall be guilty of misconduct. Activists and survivors have for years been calling for an end to be put to this test, which involves checking the laxity of a woman's vaginal muscles with two fingers. This is not the first time the Supreme Court has said it must not be used. In fact, the Union Health Ministry's 2014 guidelines too say that the test must not be conducted. Experts however say that the guidelines do not translate into change on the ground that there still is not enough sensitization and training of all the personnel involved in the reporting examination and investigation of a sexual assault case the problem in india is huge and multifaceted the country as per the national crime records bureau statistics registered 31677 cases of rape in 2021 an average of 86 a day and this too may be an underreported number Challenges for survivors range from the actual reporting of a case to the police station to getting an FIR lodged to the medical examination and then navigating the court system. So how much has changed since the Nirbhaya case shook the nation in December 2012 and led to the criminal law amendment of 2013? How much should the departments of police and health work together in cases where medical examinations and collection of evidence could be important to an investigation? How much of what is in the law on paper translate into the experience of a survivor and what can be done to make this process better and more sensitive to speak to us about this and more we have with us today Neetika Vishwanath head sentencing of project 39A of the National Law University in Delhi Good evening Neetika and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast Thank you Zubeda for inviting me Neetika, the Supreme Court has come down heavily on the two-finger test used in medical examinations of sexual assault survivors, calling it regressive and unscientific. This is not the first time the court has sought to ban the test, but it has now attached penal provisions. Doctors will be held for medical misconduct if they perform this two-finger test. Can you explain the significance of this judgment to us? Right. Thank you for your question, Zubeda. So like you said on 31st October 2022 a two judge bench of the Supreme Court noted that the two finger test is a sexist medical practice that revictimizes and retraumatizes rape survivors and while doing that the court issued directions to the union and the state government to implement uh, 2014 guidelines that the Ministry of Health has issued in cases of uh, sexual violence Now one thing that I would want to clarify is that this is not the first time that the Supreme Court has prohibited the two finger test in rape cases it is more like a reiteration of its prior position however what is new is that the court this time has taken it forward by sort of talking about the need to reassess the syllabus of medical schools and it has also said that people who continue to use the two finger test will be guilty of misconduct so i just want to clarify that it remains unsure whether that means penal misconduct because that clarity is not available in the judgment 
And I also want to say that it is not for the court to provide that clarity because ultimately implementation has to come from the executive. So while the court has pushed the executive in that direction, what the executive will make of it is something that we'll have to see. So I'm not entirely sure what this misconduct means. Is it professional misconduct and what will be the kind of things that will be associated with someone who is guilty of such misconduct? Right. You were saying that the court has spoken about the need to change the medical curriculum as well. There have been uh, some attempts previously, and as you told us, the Supreme Court itself has previously said that this test should not be conducted anymore. So why is it that over the course of several years, even despite the 2014 guidelines that the health ministry drew up, why is it that this test has continued to be used for so long? This test has continued to be used because of severe concerns around implementation of the law, right? And just the wide dissonance that exists between formal law and law in practice and what translates in terms of the ground reality. And so two-finger test is just one of many things on the front of sexual violence cases where what you see in the written law is very different from what's happening on the ground. And Here, the challenge is a bigger one because you not only have to ensure that the legal community understands the sexist and the patriarchal origins of the test and the problems of bringing this test within a sexual violence context, but also the medical community. So you're dealing with two communities which hold their own prejudices about sexual violence because they are part of a society which has a certain kind of understanding of sexual violence where the moment it is asserted that you may have had previous sexual experience, somehow there are doubts about the veracity of your claims that you've been raped, right? So it's, it, it is pointing to a larger problem of who we consider as an ideal rape victim and who we think cannot be raped or could lie about rape. And the two-finger test uh, and its continued existence is a demonstration of the fact that, you know, uh, formal legal changes have not translated to reality and just the problems associated with working with different kind of stakeholders, judges, policemen, the medical community, and also lawyers. And which is why uh, there was a corresponding change in the law because the two-finger test and the findings of it were often used by defense lawyers to say that the victim has previous sexual history, so she's possibly lying about rape, which is why we, through the 2013 amendment, Section 53A was inserted in the CRPC, Criminal Procedure Code, to say that you cannot bring in the previous sexual experience of the victim in your cross-examination. Unfortunately, What that has led to is that while the law bans bringing these aspects at the stage of conviction, Professor Mrinal Satish's work on sentencing in rape cases show that the site of stereotyping has moved from the conviction stage to the sentencing stage. So these questions are still relied upon by judges when they're deciding how much punishment should a convict get. Right. So... You're saying that at the sentencing stage, if it's decided, that means that if the person has had previous sexual history, then there is a chance that the 
convict's sentencing might be lower. Yes, that's what Mrinal Satish's work shows. He analyzed all high court and Supreme Court decisions in rape cases and he found that there was a connection between the severity of the sentence and how and the classification of the victim into a good or bad category. Despite the fact that the sexual history, the Supreme Court itself has said is completely irrelevant to the case. Yes, because the Supreme Court has said that it is irrelevant to the conviction and it cannot be brought in at cross-examination. And because the sentencing stage of a trial is quite ambiguous and the law is not so well developed. So you see that slow shift because technically the law only bans it on a certain aspect. So you're seeing that shift which shows that what has not changed or what the law has not been able to achieve. And in fact, what the law cannot achieve is social change. And which is why we need to, when we want to think about solutions, one has to go beyond the law. One has to talk about not just trainings in medical schools about how to finger test is unscientific or how that is completely irrelevant to whether someone has been raped or not, especially now since 2013, because the definition of rape itself has expanded, right? So there need not be penal penetration because penetration of finger or oral rape is also considered within the definition of rape. So there is no correlation between penetration, presence of semen, those kind of things that you hear about. So while the law has changed, what you're seeing is that there's been no social change and these, and there's a very narrow understanding of what rape is and how a rape should look like. Right. So we, like you said, we have come a long way in terms of our laws. On papers, we have these laws and guidelines that are progressive. So where is it Social change you were talking about, where is it that more work needs to be done still? We, do we still need to make changes at the medical curriculum level, at the police level and at the level of the judiciary? Definitely at all these levels. One is to, at the starting point, acknowledge the limitation of the law, that criminal law has a very limited role to play in changing something that is so deeply rooted And then to say, okay, but what are the limited things that law can facilitate? And within that, I think the problems within the criminal justice system need to be fixed at the investigation stage, at the stages of reporting, at forensic examination stage, and also at the stage of adjudication and judges' own understanding of sexual violence and how survivors should or should not be. Because, I mean, one sees concerns at all these aspects. For instance, uh, there are the conviction rates in rape cases are extremely low, right? And they have been persistently low. They've been around 28%. Now, that becomes a conversation to say how we need harsher sentences, how we need to do more on this aspect, how we need to make law more and more severe. But I think what we need to do first to sort of reassess how we want to change the law or what we want to change, I think what we need to do, and this cannot be the responsibility of a few researchers or organizations that work on the issue. It is something that the executive has to do, that they need to first figure out what the ground realities are, right? So for instance, 
since we're talking specifically about the two finger test today, it is to say that the executive first needs to figure out, okay, what is very clear is that the test continues to happen. But to figure out why is it happening, we need to do a pan-India assessment of why it is happening. Is it a question of the larger problems around forensic medicine infrastructure in India? How much of it has to do with the fact that there is no awareness within the legal community that this is unscientific? How much of it has to do with the fact that the medical community is extremely sexist when it comes to handling these kind of cases? Do they even see themselves as care providers, right? Because when a rape survivor is uh, going to the hospital, she needs counseling, she needs support. So, and there's been so much research around rape trials to say that how Sometimes doctors treat them in a very mechanical manner where they're not given the care and attention they need. And the 2014 guidelines of the ministry talk about that. But because that is not happening, it is for the executive to first do that assessment of why it is not happening. I can tell you what I see as concerns, but I as an individual or as a researcher have very limited resources. The state has a lot of resources for them to actually do a pan-India review, right? For instance, in 2014, uh, I was uh, studying rape trials in Lucknow, where I was observing rape trials for about eight weeks in that one courtroom that was adjudicating all rape cases at the time. And other than that, I also spoke to defense lawyers and I did focus group discussions at about 12 police stations in Lucknow district. And what I was told was by defense lawyers that the two finger test still continues to happen. And I was surprised because the case files that I had looked at of the recent cases at the time did not reflect the two-finger test. And what I was told was that, well, it still happens. It's no longer being recorded because the format of these medical legal certificates has changed. Now, I got that information only because I asked that question and I was in the field at that time. But these kind of specific local things and practices need to first be documented to understand what is the kind of challenge that we are facing if we truly want to implement this, if we truly want to get rid of the test. Right. So, the laws are being made on, on one level, but the filtration process where they come down to police personnel and medical care workers on the ground is not happening. Right, absolutely. So, I mean, all research on sexual violence in India actually shows that the biggest hurdle that survivors face is reporting these crimes, right? And we are having conversation about uh, making punishments harsher and finding solutions to these low conviction rates. But what we are not understanding is that the system is so hostile that even reporting a rape complaint becomes a big hassle. When when they're taken to the hospital, they're subjected to the two-finger test. And I started my career as a women's rights lawyer. And for two years, I was practicing in Lucknow. And I was involved in legal representation in a lot of rape cases. And what we saw was that it was so, it was such a routine practice to conduct the two-finger test that it did not matter whether the complainant had come forward after 15 days, after one month. I, I remember the specific experience of a 
sexual violence case in a communal violence con- context where lodging the FIR was such a big challenge. And that happened only almost one and a half months after the incident and the two finger test was conducted and I don't understand the logic of it right because a the incident happened one and a half months back Uh, so what are you trying to sort of gauge uh, at that point and how are you conducting the test uh, and the kind of hostile questions that uh, the doctors were asking the survivors uh, involved in that incident and almost blaming them that, you know, of course, these are false cases and you're just targeting our men from the dominant community. Uh, so, I mean, this really shows that one, the doctors, it's so, it's so normalized. It's so normalized and they don't see the sexist origins of it. And of course, they buy into this logic because there's also a ro- lot of writing that shows the influence of uh, medical jurisprudence on Indian rape trials and how those seminal medical textbooks talk a lot about uh, assessing the status of a woman's hymen who's a rape survivor and who's who's being examined by a doctor. So what I'm trying to say is that the hurdle for a survivor starts with reporting, then goes on to how they their experience is in their interaction with doctors. And it is far from what the 2014 guidelines imagine them to be. And then how they experience the proceedings, the trial and just the difficulties in navigating the trial phase. And I've and unless we address that, and even here we can go deeper, right? Like, why is the police not lodging the complaint? Why are they so hostile? Do they go through sexuality trainings? Uh, because it is one thing to update them on the latest laws, but quite another to also have this kind of perspective building. When we talk about uh, forensic medicine and we talk about medical examination of of rape survivors and we talk about evidence in these cases right forensic evidence dna evidence uh we have to also talk about forensic labs in india and that infrastructure right because so many cases end up in acquittal because the investigation is so poorly done uh because the forensic evidence has become contaminated because our Cops do not know how to collect and store the evidence. So, I mean, there are multiple challenges, uh, multiple governance-related challenges, and two-finger test is one of many of those challenges that come into play. Speaking about uh, forensic evidence, Neetika, one of the things that experts have pointed to is that uh, while uh, sexual assault as well as several other crimes like unnatural deaths Uh, require the expertise of the medical community, there is not much interaction between the health and the home departments. Uh, As we know, the home department uh, controls the police department. So is that necessary? Because, for instance, you were talking about forensic labs and the infrastructure that we need. That comes under the police department. Well, actually, it is the doctors of the health department who will collect the evidence from a survivor. So is is that interdepartmental coordination also a problem? That is definitely a problem. That is smooth interaction between all actors is extremely important. And as far as forensic evidence is concerned, I don't think the actors 
understand how to handle forensic evidence, how to store it, how to collect it. For instance, sometime two years ago, uh, in 2020, uh, sometime in 2020, a case, a gang rape case was reported in Hathras. And in that case, a Dalit woman uh, was gang raped and murdered by upper caste, four upper caste men. And there was a lot of conversation around DNA evidence. Now, one of the big concerns with DNA evidence and cases like these is that the police may collect the evidence, but then it remains in the police station for a long period of time and it is not stored properly, so it gets contaminated. The other problem is that our forensic examiners who are interacting with the survivor, who are conducting the medical examination, one is people who are conducting the medical examination and other are people who are actually examining the evidence. There are concerns at both levels, right? So medical examiners are supposed to do two kinds of forensic examinations. One is serological analysis, which is for the identification of the bodily substance, which could be oral swab, vaginal swab. And the other is DNA profiling to determine the presence of DNA, which then becomes of relevance uh, at the evidentiary stage. Now, the problem is that both these things are not done properly. Often they're not done in time because our actors are not properly trained and so many, many rape cases where evidence could have been collected and documented and could have made the case stronger actually does not play out and we see acquittals, right? But I do want to flag that this concern around the rate of conviction being only 28% and then us thinking about strategies of how does one increase the rate of conviction, I think I want to sort of guard against that. And I think it is very important to first understand why the rate of conviction is so low. And for that, what we first need to do is examine the category of the offenses, right? So what we often hear is uh, the NCRB statistics, so many rape cases, conviction rate is con consistently low. But what the NCRB crime statistics is not telling us is what are these rape cases? And if one looks a little closer, what one will find is that it's a mix of different kind of cases. It has cases involving elopement of couples, right? Where the parents have actually filed cases of rape against the man. There are cases within the category, something called promise to marry cases, where a couple are dating and they have a sexual relationship and when and there's a promise to marry and when the man does not follow up on their promise women file rape cases so there are also those categories then there might be cases that are very different from these and are actually rape cases as we imagine in our popular imagination right so i'm saying that when we talk about the problems of the system and we say acquittal rate is so high and how do we address that? I think first we need to identify what is the 
category of cases that are coming to the courtroom as rape cases. And what we'll find, and at least what I found in my study back in 2015, and it's dated now, but several studies in other cities uh, subsequently have shown that, that a lot of these cases are these other category cases, which are not rape cases, but, you know, the rape law being misused by, say, the parents. So one is to first identify what are the categories and then to uh, say, okay, within the categories that are not problematic, what are the gaps? What are the concerns, right? Because, uh, and one of my biggest concerns at that time was that when I observed 92 trials in eight weeks, more than 50% of those cases were elopement cases. And my concern was, okay, it's not like sexual violence is not happening. So where are the other survivors? Why are they not approaching the system? Why are they not using the criminal justice system? So I think we need to go far back. And I know that's not what your question was, but I feel like it's important to sort of have this context that we need to really step back and reassess uh, how we want to plan the reform around sexual violence, be it around a collection of forensic evidence, be it around how do we get survivors to use the system more or why are they not using the criminal justice system more. And and also on forensic evidence, I just want to clarify that there seems to be this understanding that the DNA evidence is a magic bullet, is the gospel truth that can solve all difficult sexual violence cases. But I just want to reiterate that while it is a very important piece of evidence, concerns around infrastructure in terms of forensic labs in this country, how trained our scientists are to collect and to store and to actually, you know, respond to the case in terms of their report, those are very critical questions because often you find doctors, you know, when they come to uh, give their testimony in the courtroom in a rape trial, they will give you a sense of what the certificate that they have written is saying. And then some, they often I've seen doctors also comment on whether they think rape happened or not. Right. And I don't think a doctor is in a position to do that. All they are in a position to do is describe what they found in terms of the injury, in terms of the swab. And then the forensic expert can also just give his opinion. But no one can ever objectively say whether something happened or not happened. So I just want us to guard against that, that in our imagination, forensic science and forensic reports should not become the gospel truth. Right. As you were pointing out, Neetika, uh, a lot of these cases you told us were elopement cases and activists have now begun to tell us also about the uh, about the POSCO law and how um, a lot of uh, young people between the ages of 16 and 18 are being prosecuted because of that law as well, who are in consensual relationships, I mean. So like you told us, this has a this has a lot of ramifications. But what would what would you like to see happen? How do how do uh, countries other countries, for instance, um, look at their sexual assault laws? And what can we do to make the process from reporting to trial easier on survivors? Right. So, uh, I mean, in terms of making the system more accessible for the survivors, one thing is that 
the police need to be sensitized and so do doctors so what i'm suggesting is that those guidelines actually be realized and what that requires first is for the executive to do a pan india review and assessment to understand okay what do we mean when we say these guidelines are not being applied right is it the same for all states is there different levels of compliance that is happening so first that assessment is needed unless we understand the problem how are we going to come up with a solution then uh, after soon after the 2013 amendments and you know after the justice verma committee recommendation there was something called the nirbhaya fund that was set up right and the imagination was that there will be one stop crisis centers for survivors of sexual violence because often all their needs can be met at one site as per 2019 and this data is from 2019 and this was in response to a question in lok sabha 88.8% of those funds were not utilized so i mean we need to ask these questions we need to understand why this is not happening so essentially those one stop crisis centers have not materialized they have not materialized exactly and you and the problem is not that funds are not available because clearly funds are available but they have not been utilized so what i'm saying is that i think our approach to reform to sexual violence a has to go beyond criminal law right because it's a social problem two we need to pause step back and first diagnose the problem and the extent of the problem on different fronts be it the two finger test be it okay what's happening to the nirbhaya fund be it okay what is happening in these trainings police trainings or how is the why is the medical curriculum not reflecting the changes or if it is reflecting the changes why are doctors not becoming aware of their role why are doctors never really spoken to about how they need to contribute to the criminal justice system do they see themselves as actors in the system or because my own experience has been and this is uh, only with respect to my study that doctors are actually very scared when they come to these rape trials uh, to give their testimony they are very scared of the legal system and i don't think they see themselves as uh, responsible actors right who are contributing it is very much that okay this burden has put on me because i am a government hospital doctor and i must do this it's more about just discharging a duty because it's been put on me and also like you said like you mentioned uh, in your earlier question that there needs to be more smooth interaction between all actors that are involved but the larger approach is of good governance and for that we need to first diagnose the problem which cannot and must not be done by the supreme court or by civil society organizations or individual researchers because all our capacity is very very limited this is something that requires significant resources and time and the executive needs to prioritize it to first understand the problems at various levels and then to suggest measures and i think we need to as citizens ask implementation questions more rather than asking for more and more laws new laws right we need to ask follow up questions on this happened 10 years ago why is the situation the same rather than asking for newer things 
So that would be my overall suggestion in terms of the approach to the reform on this. Okay, thank you so much for speaking to us today, Neetika. Thank you so much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon. <laughs>